Hey, buddy, what you doing? Is it Christmas yet? No, sorry, not yet. I can't wait for Christmas. Yeah, I can't wait for Christmas either. In fact, let's celebrate now. <laughs> Welcome to the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. <laughs> it is February 25th, 2017, and that means there is just 10 months left until Christmas. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about one of Christmas's most famous love stories, Love Actually. We'll learn a few things about Beauty and the Beast and Enchanted Christmas. Then we'll add a little Christmas to all of your podcasts, and then we'll hear from someone who thinks Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Okay, let's start the show. Welcome to the program. I'm Tim Babb, stand-up comedian, Christmas freak, and I'm happy to have you here for our little Christmas show. Thankfully, I have not been washed away by all this rain we're getting here in the Can't Wait for Christmas studios in California. Hopefully you are safe, warm, and dry wherever you are, so grab a blanket, get some hot cocoa, and snuggle in for some Christmas goodness. Now, I'd like to switch things up this episode. We're going to start with some listener feedback, and we're going to dive straight into Santa Bab's mailbag. Santa Bab, he is going to read some emails from you, or tweets. Or Facebook messages to Santa Bab. He is opening up his mailbag tonight. This letter comes to us from Vreg, uh, who actually sent this into another podcast that I was on, and uh, he informed us that his father passed away in late 2016 due to cancer. And uh, in Vreg's letter, he said, uh, Tim, I know your Can't Wait for Christmas podcast is small, but I am very grateful to you for it. Uh, my dad's death being so close to the holidays really made my mom and I give up on Christmas. We were cooking in the kitchen, and I decided we should listen to the podcast on Christmas Day. I had to remind her that we met you at Captain Neo at Disneyland. We both laughed listening to Kermit, Darth Vader, and Mickey sing Christmas carols and the jokes you made throughout the show. It was the first time we smiled after my dad passed. From there, we decided to have an impromptu Christmas dinner, and we invited whoever could come. So in a way, you helped give us back our Christmas, and I will always be grateful for that. Well, Vreg, I don't know if I said this on the other show, but thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, I'm glad that this silly little episode was able to bring you some measure of joy. I I remember my first Christmas after my dad passed. It was hard because my dad really loved Christmas. Not a fanatic like me, Uh, but every year you could see how much he enjoyed it. Once I even noticed tears in his eyes as I finished saying grace during Christmas dinner. Um, I miss him. I miss him terribly. In fact, that's why you hear his voice at the end of every episode of this show. I I like to think he's not gone. He's just joined the Spirit of Christmas team. Uh, I'm sure your father's on the team too, Vreg, and that's the only explanation for how that goofy show full of awful impressions led to a Christmas dinner. But again, thank you for sharing your story. Okay, well, now I have to try and change gears from the very serious to the normal harebrained shenanigans that this show, and I'm not really sure how to do it. Oh, excuse me! Oh, Hey, imaginary listener that sounds like George Bailey. Did you just call me an awful impression? Well, I mean, you objectively sound almost nothing like the character. Well, if, I, if I'm such an embarrassment, why why even have me on your show? Well, I mean, I do the show alone most of the time, but it helps to have someone to talk to occasionally, even if that someone is just a bad impression of Jimmy Stewart. Well, there you go again, always running me down. Maybe it'd be better if I was never on this podcast at all. No, imaginary listener, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it as an insult. Come back. You know how this story is going to end, don't you? <sighs> Man, this show is going off the rails quickly. 
This is supposed to be a silly Christmas show. Let's bring some holiday cheer back up in here because we need a little Christmas now. We need a So I assume because you're listening to this that you like podcasts and you like Christmas. That's a pretty safe assumption, right? But there aren't a ton of other podcasts that talk about Christmas all year long. I mean, there are a lot of great podcasts out there that talk about all kinds of things, from murder mysteries to nerdy interviews, movie game shows, and bad movie review shows. Well, I stumbled onto a way to get your Christmas fix while listening to those non-Christmas podcasts. Full disclosure, this tip works best if you can listen to your podcast while sitting at a computer. Since most of us are chained to a desk all day, this should work for a lot of us. I know I'm personally sitting on my laptop for a good chunk of time each day. So, you go to your favorite podcast website and start playing the latest episode. Then, open up another tab in your browser and go to YouTube or Pandora. Punch up a string of instrumental Christmas tunes and adjust the volume so it's just a bit quieter than the podcast and voila! Now any podcast is a Christmas podcast. Any day of the year. I actually discovered this when my Firefox crashed one day. When I restarted, all the tabs I had open started playing at once, and all of a sudden, Nostalgia was a Disney podcast that was also Christmas-themed. I was like, this is brilliant! So now I do it all the time. Now, is this a silly tip? Yes. But give it a try and tell me how it worked for you. Leave a comment at can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. Incidentally, there is also a link to a good instrumental Christmas YouTube video mix in the show notes of this episode. But now it's time to move on to our next segment, Five Golden Things. At the time of this recording, the live-action version of Beauty and the Beast starring Emma Watson is a few weeks away from hitting theaters. So I thought now was a good time to take a look back at some Beauty and the Beast material from Christmas past. Of course, I'm talking about the direct-to-video follow-up to Disney's original Beauty and the Beast and Enchanted Christmas. You've been to the dinner. You've been to the dance. Now... Be our guest for a Beauty and the Beast Christmas celebration with the special edition release of Disney's Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted Christmas. We're going to have the greatest Christmas ever! Now, the enchanting story continues as Belle... She's planning Christmas? ...and her magical friends... The master has forbidden Christmas! Well, no one can forbid Christmas. As long as there's Christmas... Bring the joy of Christmas to the castle and warm the heart of a beast. It's from a girl. Walt Disney Pictures presents the special edition of Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted Christmas. What are we waiting for, Christmas? (laughs) We're going to count down five fun facts about this film, starting with... Number five. It was originally going to be a sequel. The problem is, you can't call the sequel Beauty and the Beast, because at the end of Beauty and the Beast, he turns back into a prince. You'd have to call it Beauty and the regular-looking guy. The plot was going to be that Gaston, the villain from the first movie's younger brother, was going to seek revenge on Belle and the not-beast. But that was all scrapped in favor of setting the story in the middle of the first movie. Basically, they compromised by making the whole story a flashback within a sequel. The story picks up at the first Christmas after the events of the last movie, and then... The Mrs. Potts character tells a story that takes place in between some of the events we saw in the original film. Her story is set after Belle runs away and is attacked by wolves and saved by the Beast, but before the Beast shows her the library that's in the castle. While this allowed for the magic of seeing Beauty and the Beast together again, it does create several narrative challenges. The characters can't really advance in this movie. Beast can't overcome his poor behavior because we see that happen in the main film later on. So he's kind of stuck in quasi-jerk mode for the entire film. And also, no matter what danger the characters get in, we know they'll get out of it because we know how the rest of the story goes. 
Also, the story is being told by Mrs. Potts, who is not in most of the scenes. Like, her character isn't involved in some of the action that's taking place, so how could she tell these parts of the story? Worst of all, she's telling the story to Chip, her son, who is in a bunch of the scenes that she's not in. So he would know what happened. Ah! My brain will explode if I think about this too long. Let's just move on. Number four. This movie was made in Canada. Yeah, this is one of your American-made movies. This was produced by Walt Disney Animation Canada, a studio created in 1996 to focus on direct-to-video features, don't you know? Sadly, the studio was closed in 2002 due to budget cuts. But hey, at least they made this, okay? Cut me some slack. You were giving George Bailey guys flack about his impression, and that's the best Canadian accent you can do? Do you really have room to talk, imaginary listener, that kinda sounds like Kermit the Frog, but not really? I'm just saying, maybe you don't have room to judge, but that's none of my business. You know what? Just drink your tea. Number three. Practically, the entire voice cast came back. Typically for these direct-to-video releases, they usually get sound-alikes to do the voices of the characters. They don't want to pay the money to have the actors from the original movie come back, because they cost a lot more. But in this case, they got pretty much everybody. Angela Lansbury, Jerry Orbach, David Ogden Stiers, Paige O'Hara, Robbie Benson. That's pretty impressive. They also got some impressive new talent to join the ranks, like Tim Curry, Bernadette Peters, and Paul Rubens. One character definitely did get recast, and that was Chip, the little boy, cup boy, cup boy, whatever you call him. The child actor who voiced him in the original movie had grown too old to voice the part, so they replaced him with... Number two. Haley Joel Osment. That's right, Haley Joel Osment is in this movie. His breakout role in The Sixth Sense wouldn't come until a few years after this movie came out, but he was already pretty well known for playing Tom Hanks' son in 1994's Forrest Gump. But the most interesting thing about this movie to me is... Number one. It retroactively makes the original movie a Christmas movie. See, there's a flashback in the movie which is odd since the whole movie's a flashback. So it's a flashback within a flashback. Oh dear, I feel my brain about to explode again. Back to my point. <clears throat> so they flash back to the night Beast got cursed. It turns out that night was Christmas. They show the prince and all his people in the castle celebrating Christmas when the enchantress shows up and curses everyone. Who disturbs my Christmas? He's... Take this rose in exchange for shelter from the bitter cold. I don't need a rose. Go away, you wretched old hag. You have been deceived by your own cold heart. A curse upon your house and all within it. Until you have found one to love you as you are, you shall remain forever. Which is literally the first part of the original movie. So the entire movie is the beast trying to undo this Christmas curse. Therefore, by the power vested in me by starting up a Christmas podcast, I hereby decree that the original Beauty and the Beast and its subsequent live-action remake due out in a few weeks are officially deemed Christmas movies. So let it be written! Okay, so maybe some of you aren't buying it. So let's move on to a movie that is definitely a Christmas movie. Let's talk about the 2003 romantic comedy, Love Actually. Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. 
When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. I have to admit, this movie's been around for over a decade and I've never seen it until last month. And I'm not one of those dudes who thinks they're too cool to watch a romantic comedy. I love a good romantic comedy. I just never got around to this one for some reason. But I caught the beginning of it on TBS last Christmas Eve and I thought, I should watch this. Then I found out it was on Netflix and I thought it would make a good topic for this show in February, the month of love. Yeah. and directed by Richard Curtis, who had previously given us such romantic movies as Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, and Bridget Jones's Diary. He'd come up with two other ideas for love story films he wanted to write, one about a single prime minister trying to balance a budding romance with running the country, and the other about a couple falling in love despite the fact that they don't speak the same language. But he eventually decided he didn't want to flesh either one of those out into an entire film. That's when he had the idea of mushing them into one film, a film that could tell several different love stories and cut out all the fluff. That's what love actually is. It's a bunch of different love stories, but you only see what you need to see to see their love story. And that's especially evident in the Kira Knightley-Andrew Lincoln story. It really gets told in only three scenes. The wedding scene, the scene where she sees the wedding video, and him holding those big signs. That's amazing to me. I mean, yeah, they're in other parts of the movie, but they really only have three scenes to tell their story. The rest of the time, they're just background to someone else's story. So let's dive into these stories. There are about nine stories being told, and they all overlap to some degree, which is really amusing when you think about it, because since Hugh Grant's character is the Prime Minister, that means everyone in this movie is only one or two degrees away from the head of Her Majesty's government in the United Kingdom. But... I'm just going to focus on the stories. Oh, and we're going to get into some spoilers for the film. So if you're like me and haven't seen this 13-year-old film, stop this, go to Netflix, and stream it, and come back. If you don't have Netflix, you can go check out the DVD from your local library. If you don't want to do any of those things, then I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil this movie for you. Oh, and it should be noted that this is an R-rated movie for good reason. So kids, uh, maybe just wait till this movie plays on TV again. That way they cut out all the nutty bits. Okay, on to the stories. You've got Bill Nighy, who plays an aging rock star trying to make a comeback, and Gregor Fisher as his abuse-taking manager. So, um, what was this epiphany? Um, it, it was about Christmas. You realized it was all around? No, I, I realized that Christmas is, is the time to be with the people you love. Right. And, and much as it grieves me to say it, it, it might be that the people I... Love is, in fact, you. Well, this is a surprise. Yeah. Ten minutes at Elton John, you're as gay as a maple. I like this story because it's ultimately about bro love. These guys get on each other's nerves and insult each other, but deep down they care about each other, especially in a movie made before the concept of a bromance became a thing. So he records a cover of Love is All Around, which is lightly edited to make it Christmas is All Around. It's played in the movie as if it's a cynical song that's not very good, but I like it unironically. Bill goes on TV to promote the song, saying if it reaches number one by Christmas Eve, he'll perform the song naked live on TV. It does, and he does. 
Fun fact, apparently Bill Nighy really was naked when he shot that scene. Told you this movie was rated R, kids. Although he does have a guitar strategically placed so you don't see anything you're not supposed to. However, during filming, I guess Bill got a little too wild with his dance moves and the guitar kept moving to the wrong place. The director had to keep telling him to put it back down! Next up, we have the aforementioned Kira Knightley, Andrew Lincoln story. Towards the beginning, Kira marries Andrew's friend, Chiwetel Ejiofor. At first, it seems like Andrew's character doesn't like Kira's character. But later we learn he's actually in love with her and trying to come to grips with what to do about it. This resolves with the now famous paper sign scene of him telling her how he feels but vowing to move on. Side note, in the Wikipedia article on this movie, it describes the end of that scene with, One by one, the cards confess his love for her. Then he walks away. Juliet runs after him to give him a quick, innocent kiss and runs back inside. I like how they specify that the kiss was innocent, because we can't have any moral ambiguity in this story of a man literally coveting his neighbor's wife. Anyway, moving on. Colin Firth finds out his girlfriend is cheating on him, so he goes off to his French cottage to work on his book. Luisa Moniz plays his housekeeper who speaks only Portuguese. In a twist that can only be described as super realistic, they both somehow fall in love with each other. Some fun facts about this story. In one scene, Colin's book pages get blown into the water and Lucia goes to jump in after it. First, she takes off her dress so that it's, she's just in her underwear. Which, before I even go further, that is funny to me because the wind that blew those pages in was a huge wind and that was a very flimsy dress. There's no way that dress is waiting for her on the dock when she gets back out of the water. So the dress would have gotten wet anyway. Might as well kept it on. But that's beside the point. So like I said, she gets down to her underwear. There was a 45-minute debate about what color her underwear should be. In case you're wondering, light blue one. Way to go, light blue. Also, the water she and eventually Colin jump into was only 18 inches deep and infested with mosquitoes. Colin's elbow was bitten so much that it swelled to the size of an avocado. At the end of the film, Colin ditches his family in England on Christmas Eve to fly to France to propose to her. Because, again, realism. But anyway, when Colin leaves his family, his nephews say... Colin's character was named Jamie specifically for that line. You see, writer-director Richard Curtis's brother is named Jamie. That is deep dedication to some sibling rivalry. Next up, and I'm going in Wikipedia order here for no real reason, we have Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman. They are married with two kids. Alan's secretary, Heike Makash, is not so subtly hitting on him at work. He decides to buy her an expensive necklace for Christmas without telling his wife. He is almost thwarted when the cashier, Rowan Atkinson, takes forever to wrap the item up. But he does purchase it, and Emma later finds it in his pocket and assumes it's a gift for her. But when she opens her present on Christmas Eve to discover that Alan got her a CD, she puts two and two together and realizes the expensive necklace was for his secretary. This story made me sad when I watched the movie, and even sadder when I did research on the movie for this show. Up until Emma opened the box, I assumed Alan had decided to give her the necklace instead of the secretary, and that was going to be the happy ending. Then, I assume there'd be some grand gesture by Alan to in some way redeem himself by the end of the movie. Wah, wah. Then, while scouring the web to find interesting things to say about this movie for you, I discovered that the script editor and wife of director Richard Curtis had recently live-tweeted a screening of this film. During this, she was asked if Alan's character really had an affair with the secretary or if he was just tempted. She responded, Definitely had an affair. I begged Richard just to make it a flirtation, but no, the whole way. That bums me out. I understand that infidelity happens, and it's a story that some people might want to see told, but I don't want that. I want a happy ending. In lighter news about this story arc, there's a reason Rowan Atkins' character takes so long to wrap up that necklace. 
Well, actually, there's two reasons. The director was inspired when he bought something in a shop in New York, and they took forever to wrap it up, which I can relate to, and I'm sure you can too if you've ever bought something even remotely fragile at a Disney theme park. They wrap it up in so many layers that it increases in size by a factor of 20 and could probably withstand a 40 megaton nuclear blast. But anyway, the other reason Rowan takes so long to wrap up the necklace is that his character is supposed to be an angel. He's intentionally taking too long to try and stop Alan from making this mistake. This was supposed to be spelled out in the movie towards the end, but the director thought that with all that was going on in the movie, the audience wouldn't be able to handle a supernatural element tossed in at the end. It would just be too much. And I I can see that argument, but I would have liked to have an angel character in this movie. An angel would add one more Christmassy element, and who wouldn't want that? But then again... This angel wasn't particularly successful in stopping Alan from doing the wrong thing. So, I don't know if I want an angel who's only successful half the time, but more on the other half later. Let's move on to the next story. Emma Thompson's brother is Hugh Grant, the newly elected prime minister. Martine McCutcheon is one of the household staff at 10 Downing Street. The two are clearly attracted to each other, but Hugh tries to ignore it and focus on his work as prime minister. This hits a snag when the President of the United States, Billy Bob Thornton, comes for an official visit. He makes it clear that although the UK and the US are partners, the US is the alpha in this relationship and England had better do what America wants. He was willing to go along with this for the sake of peaceful relations until Billy Bob tries to put the moves on Martine. This leads Hugh to give a pretty aggressive speech, saying his administration will stand up to America. That plays well with his staff, but Hugh feels he's let his personal feelings interfere with his job, so he has Martine reassigned so he won't see her anymore. Weeks later, he gets a Christmas card from her and realizes that he loves her. He grabs the security detail and goes door to door on the street he knows she lives on to tell her how he feels. He's knocking on every door, trying to find her, until he finally finds her, only to discover she's on her way out with her whole family to watch her nephew perform at a school Christmas show, nativity play, concert. I know what it is. There's a lot going on at this school performance. He decides to go with her, and they watch the show from backstage to avoid being seen. However, just as they start kissing, the curtains to the backstage go up to reveal them to the entire crowd. Couple of things about this story. Couldn't he have just looked up her address in the employee file? Surely that would have been easier than going door to door. Not as cinematically interesting, but oh, that's why. Well, also, a fun fact, Billy Bob Thornton had a very particular phobia that Hugh Grant had a little fun with. I'll let you hear it directly from Hugh, the director, and Bill Nighy from the DVD commentary. And there on the wall, incredibly, is a picture of Benjamin Disraeli. And his biggest phobia of all in life is Benjamin Disraeli. So he's actually being very brave. It's true. I I've said heard to him about this. I know. And yeah. I said to him, uh, you were frightened of Benjamin Disraeli. And he said to me, ridiculous. Who would be frightened of Benjamin Disraeli? But on the other hand, his facial hair. Terrifying. <laughs> I can't be near what, it. Is it particularly Benjamin Disraeli? Yes, yes, yes it is. Yeah. Before Benjamin. he came here to make this film and saw Ben, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he walks And around. in this scene here, just when he's about to do an important close up, I slipped that picture of Benjamin Disraeli in front of him. <laughs> and that's why, he's looking, that's why he's looking so distressed. Well, it worked. Move on. Shall we? Oh, funny. Speaking of the commentary, you should find it and give it a listen to hear Hugh Grant cracking jokes at Colin Firth's expense nearly every time he's on screen. But back to the president. At the time, people thought Billy Bob's president was based on George W. Bush, but it was actually an amalgam of Bush and Bill Clinton. A famous part of this movie is where Hugh Grant dances to the Pointer Sister song Jump. Hugh really didn't want to do that scene. He wanted to make his character feel like he could really be the prime minister, so he resisted attempts to be more sweet and more charming. Richard Curtis said in an interview a few years back that the fault line was the dance because there was no way he could do that in a prime ministerial manner. He kept putting it off and he didn't like the song. It was originally a Jackson 5 song, but we couldn't get it, so he was hugely unhappy about it. We didn't shoot it until the final day and it went so well that when we edited it, it had gone too well and he was singing along with the words. 
When you edit a dance sequence like that, it's going to be a third of the length, and the bit he's singing the words to isn't going to be the bit of that moment, so it was incredibly hard to edit. So, apparently, that dance scene wasn't supposed to be as long as it was. You can thank Hugh Grant's lip-syncing for that. Also, apparently this movie resonated strong enough to reach the actual Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair. In 2005, when people thought George Bush was acting a little too Billy Bob Thornton-like, Blair was getting some flack for his dealings with the United States. Blair said, I know there's a bit of us that would like me to do a Hugh Grant in Love Actually and tell America where to get off, but the difference between a good film and real life is that in real life, there's the next day, the next year, the next lifetime to contemplate the ruinous consequences of easy applause. Oh, so movies aren't supposed to be realistic. I take back my criticism of the Colin Firth-Lucia Moniz romance. Okay, we're not even halfway done, so let's keep things moving. Next, we have Liam Neeson. When we first see him, he's on the phone. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. No, no, come on, I told you, we're running long and we're not even halfway done. Let's stay focused. He's on the phone with his friend, Emma Thompson, talking about his wife who died shortly before the events of the movie. He is now raising his dead wife's son from another marriage, Thomas Sangster. In addition to coping with the loss of his mother, Thomas is also coping with being hopelessly in love with one of his classmates, Olivia Olson, who doesn't even know exists. However, she's going to sing a song at the school Christmas performance, Oh Yes, the same one we'll see Hugh and Martine kissing at towards the end of the film. So Thomas decides that he will learn to play drums in order to impress Olivia during that song. Liam supports him in his quest, and he does a great job playing the drums, but it doesn't look like anything will come of it, especially since Olivia is flying back to America that night. Liam convinces Thomas that they should follow her to the airport and he should tell her how he feels before she leaves. This leads to the classic rom-com dash through the airport scene where he is almost foiled by security, were it not for a bumbling Rowan Atkinson showing up and distracting the gate agent long enough for Thomas to slip past. Fun fact, in the original script, this is where Rowan would have disappeared and we would have found out he was an angel. Finally, Thomas finds Olivia just before she's about to board and not only does she know he exists... She likes him too! Hooray! This reminds me of another fun part of the DVD commentary. Thomas is sitting in on it, and he was only 12 at the time, so it's fun to hear the adult actors get super uncomfortable for him when the R-rated elements of the movie start to happen. Next, we come to Laura Linney. She works with Alan Rickman, but thankfully she's not hitting on him. Mostly because she's in love with another co-worker, Rodrigo Santoro, and everybody knows it. Alan tells her she should just make a move already, and the two do go out on what starts as a pretty successful date. However, just as things are... Um, about to get more R-rated? Uh, Laura gets a phone call. It's from her mentally ill brother. She has to end her evening with Rodrigo so she can go take care of him. A task she does quite often. During the test screenings, audiences were hoping that Laura and Rodrigo would get together, so they wanted to see something about what became of their relationship explicitly said in the film. So they did reshoots, and the director added a scene where it becomes clear that they don't get together. So, I guess be careful what you wish for, test audiences. Another fun fact, when they were casting the movie, the intention was to have all English actors. But I guess they couldn't find the right actor for Rodrigo's character, so the casting agent reached out to him, because she remembered him from seeing his work at the Venice Film Festival. Laura Linney is also not English, which you probably already knew, but when they were auditioning English actresses for the role, the director kept saying he was looking for a Laura Linney type, and none of the actresses were meeting the standard. Finally, the casting director said, Why don't you just cast Laura Linney? And they did. Next, we move on to one of the caterers at Keira Knightley's wedding, Chris Marshall. He's having no luck with the ladies in England, so he decides he needs to go to America, where he will seem exotic and foreign and therefore irresistible to American women. His buddy, Abdul Salas, tries to talk him out of it to no avail. However, because it's a movie, Chris's plan totally works, and as soon as he arrives in America, he hooks up with not one, not two, but three gorgeous American women, 
at the same time. Ivana Milicevic, January Jones, and Alicia Cuthbert. There's a scene where all the girls are taking off his clothes, which I thought sure was going to end up him getting robbed or something to learn a lesson, but nope, they're just doing, uh, R-rated things. Anyway, allegedly Chris volunteered to work for free on that day. Because, of course he did. Oh, and in the last scene of the film, which takes place at an airport a month after Christmas, Chris comes back to England with Shannon Elizabeth and Denise Richards, much to the surprise of me and Chris's buddy Abdul. Speaking of Abdul, he's our connection to the last love story. Thank heavens! Quiet, you! This story arc is the one you will probably not see if you watch this movie on TV. Why? Well, Abdul is a production assistant on a film. This film apparently has a lot of sex scenes. In order for the crew to properly light and stage these sex scenes, body doubles Martin Freeman and Joanna Page have to stand around on the set naked in many, um, R-rated positions? During this time, the two are innocently talking with each other until Martin finally musters up the courage to ask Joanna out. She says yes, and they go out on quite an innocent date. At least, by comparison to their day jobs, it's innocent. Anyway, by the time we see them at the airport a month after Christmas, they're married. Or engaged. It's not, she's got a ring on. He put a ring on it. He liked it, so he put a ring on it. Oh, oh, oh! And that's all the stories that were in the movie. I know it seems like a lot to cram into one movie, but there were actually plans for more. Richard Curtis's first draft had four extra stories in it, including one that got filmed but cut from the final movie. Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman have a daughter and a son in the movie, and we don't see a ton of the son in the movie, but apparently he had a whole story about him being poorly behaved and giving his headmaster at school a hard time. And then we get to see a little of the headmaster's relationship with her wife, who is in ailing health. If you're interested in those scenes, they're available on the DVD. So that's the movie, and it was a pretty popular one too. It did decent business at the box office, and it was the number one video rental of 2004. And people have been telling me for years how great this movie is and that I should check it out. So imagine my surprise when researching Love Actually for this podcast to find out there is a vocal group of people out there who hate this movie. If you are one of those people, I'm sure the last few minutes of this show have not been fun for you. I found an article by Lindy West that impressed me with its sheer magnitude of hate. Let me read just the first paragraph, and I'm going to edit out the, um, R-rated language. We open in an expletive-deleted airport. An expletive-deleted airport! Of course, Love Actually, the apex of cynically vacant, faux-emotional cash-grab garbage cinema would hang its big metaphor on the bleak, empathy-stripped cathedral of turgid bureaucracy known as the airport. Of course. And then, of course, Hugh Grant's voice pipes in to tell us how inspiring and magical the airport is. Because when you're at the airport, you can't help but notice that love actually is all around. The expletive-deleted airport! If that's not the epitome of unexamined privilege, declaring that the airport is your favorite place, then I don't know what is. Welcome to Love Actually. Wow. Wow. I don't think I hate anything as much as she hates Love Actually. I spent the better part of the last five years mocking, disparaging, and in all other ways insulting Zack Snyder for ruining the character of Superman in Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. But my every word is a cuddle compared to this article by Lindy West and her white-hot hate for love, actually. I'm not going to read the rest of it, but you can find it if you're interested. But she's not alone. There's a lot of articles out there that talk about what's wrong with this movie. And I understand and even agree with some of the criticisms of this movie. It's cliche. It's cheesy. The characters are somewhat weakly written, particularly the female characters. 
And it always bothers me that Hugh Grant never apologizes to Martine for having her reassigned just because he couldn't deal with his feelings when the president made inappropriate advances on her. There's quite a few things like that that bug me, but I gotta say, I loved this movie. Actually. I had planned to watch a little of it before bed and pick it up the next day because it was getting late and the movie's like two hours long. But I'll be a burnt out Christmas light if I didn't stay up and watch the whole thing. In fact, doing this episode has taken forever because every time I try to grab a clip, I end up watching a huge chunk of the movie. It's, a, it's another one of those times that I'm really glad I do this podcast or I might never have sat down to watch it. And it's great timing too because there's a sequel of sorts in the works. Richard Curtis is reassembling most of the cast for a 10 minute short that will play as part of Comic Relief in the UK on March 24th, 2017. We'll get to check in with these characters and see where their lives are all these years later. Two notable exceptions will be Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson, who will not be returning. The former because he passed away last year, and the latter because they felt they couldn't mention Emma and Alan's characters in any way and have it still be comical. I disagree. Just have Emma in the background dropping a piano on the secretary and walking away. I think that would be funny, but, you know, that's why I don't make movies because no one asked me these things. But regardless, I'm looking forward to the follow-up because I enjoyed Love Actually, and I hope you enjoyed this far more detailed than I had planned look at the film. Let's move on to our next feature and find out who sang it best. Last time we had two versions of Let It Snow battling it out. It was Dean Martin versus Vaughn Moore. And based on your votes, I hope Vaughn never listens to this because he got clobbered 91% to 9%. I guess you just love some Dean Martin. And in fairness, I do too, but Vaughn's version will always have a special place in my heart because it plays at the very end of Die Hard. (gasps) Hey, speaking of Die Hard, it's time to turn our attention to the question we're going to spend all of 2017 answering. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? It's Christmas Eve in LA. Welcome to the party, pal! Die Hard a Christmas movie! So all year, I'm asking you to write in to Christmas at Tancast.com and tell us why you think Die Hard is or isn't a Christmas movie. Since we ran a little long with all the Love Actually stuff, we only have time for one letter today, but please keep sending them in. I'll get to as many as possible in future episodes. Today's letter comes to us from Adam. He writes, Which of these films is not like the others? The Polar Express, released November 10th, 2004. Elf, released November 7th, 2003. Home Alone, released November 16th, 1990. Scrooged, released November 23rd, 1988. Die Hard, released July 20th, 1988. Other release dates, A Christmas Story, November 18th. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, December 1st. The Muppet Christmas Carol, December 11th. The Santa Claus, November 11th. Fred Claus, November 9th. A Very Harold and Kumar Christmas, November 4th. Arthur Christmas, November 23rd. Notice a trend? Film studios do not release their Christmas movies in the middle of summer. Wouldn't make sense financially to invest millions in a Christmas movie and release it in July. However, a film set at Christmas that has nothing to do with Christmas can be released at any time because it's not a Christmas movie. Consider how silly it would be to gather around the old Tannenbaum and say, you know, nothing captures the Christmas spirit better than family, friends, and the full frontal nudity of Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, another film set at Christmas that has nothing to do with Christmas, like Die Hard. Well, well, pretty strong argument against Die Hard being a Christmas movie there. Thanks, Adam. But what do you think? Agree? Disagree? Yippee-ki-yay or yippee-ki-nay? Write in and have your voice heard and let's settle this once and for all. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? This is their idea of Christmas. I gotta be here for New Year's. <laughs> oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire... 
And that is going to do it for this episode. Don't forget to stop by our website and various social media to send us some love. Actually, always love to hear suggestions for future show topics, Christmas tips, or anything else you'd like to share. And you can also email us at Christmas at Tancast.com, which is also where you should send your emails on whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Okay, look forward to hearing from you. See you in March. But in the meantime, keep laughing all the way. And that was Christmas 1983. Actually, Dad, it's 2017. Thank you for listening to the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on iTunes, or we're available on Stitcher and Google Play as well. If you'd like to leave a comment on this or any episode, go to our official website at can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. While you're there, you'll find a link to our official Zazzle store, where you can grab customizable t-shirts, ornaments, bumper stickers, and all sorts of other Christmas merchandise all year long. You can also connect with us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash can'twaitforchristmaspod, or on Twitter, we are at ChristmasPod. Or you could always send us an email directly at Christmas at Tancast.com. The Can't Wait for Christmas podcast is part of the Tancast Podcast Network. We Wish You a Merry Christmas was performed by the United States Marine Corps Band. And this amazing version of Jingle Bells on the Accordion was performed by the wonderful and talented Kristen Nowicki. All other music and sounds used in this episode are the properties of their individual copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Okay, boys, did I forget anything? God bless us, everyone. All right. Whew. This episode is super late. I am rushing against the clock to get this out before midnight on the 25th because my microphone broke yesterday. And then uh, I ended up rewriting a bunch of the episode because when you have extra time, you start tinkering, and then I tinkered too long, and now I'm almost going to miss the deadline. So let's get started. Woo! So I assume because you're listening to this that you like podcasts and you like Christmas. That's a pretty safe assumption, right? (laughs) In the notes, it's supposed to say, but there aren't a ton of other podcasts. But because of a typo, I guess, it says, but here. Like B-U-T-T, but here. No? Funny if you're looking at it. Now it's time to make be on? Autocorrect. Why would you think I was trying to say make be when I was trying to type move? Let's just move on. <coughs> oh, man. Whew. Oh, I always seem to have a cough or something when I start to record these. Sadly, the studio was closed in 2002. <coughs> For some reason, my notes say 2092. It was closed in the future. Towards the beginning, Kira marries Andrew's friend, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Ejiofor. Oh, I even wrote this phonetically. Like, I knew I have, I knew I was going to, like, there's so many names in this movie that I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing. I'm going I'm to write them phonetically so I don't do a bunch of outtakes where I can't pronounce people's names. Fail. Alan's secretary, Heike Ma. Makos. Makosh. Makosh. Haika Makosh. Haika Makosh. That's what I wrote. I'm pretty sure it's right. 
I'm going to get so many letters this episode. You can't pronounce these people's names. Well, no imaginary listener sounds like Kermit the Frog. You know I can't. I can't pronounce anything. (laughs) I never learned to read. (laughs) They wrap it up in so many layers that it increases in size by a factor of 20 and could probably withstand a 40 megaton nuclear blast. Nuclear? Nuclear. Nuclear? Nuclear. One of them is wrong. I don't know which. Am I going to look it up? No. I'm going to sound like an idiot. The fault line was the dance, because there was no way he could do that in a prime ministerial... Prime ministerial. That is a great word to read in your mind, but has a hard word to say with your mouth. Ivana Milichevich. Ivana Milichevich? At the same time, Ivana Mivichovich, Milichovich, 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 Ivana Milichovich, Ivana Milichovich, January Jones, and January Jones, <laughs> I wrote it twice. I have to go back to Ivana Milichovich, Milichovich, Ivana Milichovich. <laughs> I was recording for 50 minutes. Whew, this is going to be a long episode, baby. Ooh, girl child. <laughs>